Thank you, everyone, for returning to another episode of Out of the Main, the Yacht Rock podcast. John, I'm really excited about this episode. Yeah, we're we're daring to go somewhere that uh, could get us criticized. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's called, it's if we haven't before. Right. Yeah, just read the comments. Right. But uh, yes, we are. But as musicians, it's going to be fun to dive deep into one particular album. And we'll do this from time to time. Either we're focusing on an artist or in this case, an album and just get through like what makes this record or this artist. So either just great and worthy of our listen or reason to rediscover more of the depth or in this case, dissect what I think you would agree is one of the most iconic rock albums of the entire decade probably and maybe of all time and certainly of the yacht rock era yes to all the above um i think that uh anybody who grew up through that time period has this on their list of top albums for a few different reasons that we can get to um but certainly as it relates to yacht rock which is what this podcast is all about that even though this came out in 1977 a little bit after the beginning of what we're calling the yacht rock period it 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 defines so much of how yacht rock is made i'm not sure that the album always sounds like yacht rock Mm -hmm. but the way that they went about their business they set the sort of the prototype or the standard from what everyone else was going to start to do and that kind of became yacht rock yep and we're talking of course of steely dan's asia albums Which is, I believe, the sixth Steely Dan album, is it not? It is the sixth album, yes. And so what was interesting, at least from a style standpoint, which we'll come back to, I, I think, here's what my frame of reference is. It feels like this kind of either marked a turning point or the culmination of the evolution of where Steely Dan was always going. But it's like this record becomes, for me, something new that I feel like Fagan and Becker explored going forward. Is that accurate? I would say yes. It um, not so much of a turning point as much as they finally figured out how they wanted to do things, and they had the resources then to do it. And by that, I mean they they had started off as a five piece band and gradually whittled, whittled players out of there, um, and they moved as each album went on. They moved more and more towards hiring specialists at these. Uh, different instruments sometimes it's just special soloists or uh, they just they wanted to build a band out of these session players they wanted very specific people to do very specific things and it wasn't like they felt one band of five guys could cover everything they wanted to do right which like you said is the hallmark the whole idea of session musicians is like one of the markers of yacht rock and if you want to know just how dra- dramatically they moved away from a five piece this record has some 40 musicians on it yeah and really steely dan at this point was two guys right it was becker and fagan yet they had all these other guys on there but you know for context the album went to number three in the u.s number five in the uk so I mean, it was highly popular. This wasn't just, you know, music for the heady, you know, hipster types. Uh, it won a Grammy for the best engineered recording, non-classical. It was nominated for two others. I think uh, album of the year and uh, best pop vocal performance or something like that. And so it was recognized by the Academy as well as it was bought in like crazy for people. And, and a few markers for this before we get into the musicality of it that um, this album for years, and I, th- I still think 
to a certain degree it still is by some people. This was the album you put on when you wanted to test your audio system. <laughs> if you were trying on new headphones at the store, you wanted them to put Asia on. You know, If you were che- checking out speakers or somebody was coming over and you wanted to say, hey, check out my system, Asia was always the album that people seem to go to for that. Interesting. Well, yeah, I know it received critical acclaim just from the Sonic quality of it and we'll like you said get into that a little bit deeper but if you you want to get a taste for just the personnel alone mm-hmm. um i mean it's almost too many to list but it is. go to the yeah, there's yeah. a wikipedia page for asia the album but you know some of the names that you'll recognize that we've brought up larry carlton yeah. lee rittenauer um steve gad so the, mm-hmm. there are a number of drummers bernard purdy all right. of these names should sound familiar to the people who have listened to prior episodes um it even uh rick Murata. Yeah, Jay Graydon, all of these guys, Jim Horn, Chuck Finley, it's like Michael McDonald, all yeah. of these guys that we say are the, these are the, the core rock. session guys of Yacht Rock. Yeah, in, in some 40 it. of them, which yeah. is just ridiculous. Well, it's the, kind of the ultimate example of what session players for hire meant and what it was going to sound like when you brought in guys that had jazz vocabularies but as well as rock vocabularies. I mean, they were very seasoned musicians. They weren't just, you know, rockers that could play fast or play loud. You know, they had just, they were very schooled. And there's a, for people who are really interested and want to get really nerdy about this record, what, there's something out, a video, long form sort of documentary. Mm-hmm. What, what is that called? That was a, there was an old VH1 series. I think it was um, VH1 uh, ran it originally. Classic albums, it's called. Uh, there's a lot of great ones on there. Uh, I know that currently they're available on uh, Amazon Prime. I'm sure that license moves around, but currently Amazon Prime has the Asia one as well as a bunch of others, and they're they're great watches. They're really well put together. Yeah, and one of the snippets from that is on YouTube. If you uh, uh, go to YouTube and search for making of Peg Steely Dan or yeah, something like that, right. there's this awesome video, and it talks through the engineers kind of talk through their lament about just the how many musicians were there because apparently they would have. They'd come in, they'd have a band, they'd spend all day cutting a song, that band would go home, the engineers would wake up in the morning, and they'd see a whole new band the next day recording the same song Mm -hmm. until they got it right. Did they then pick the best track, or did they Frankenstein all of that stuff together? I gathered that they they took the best performance as a band. They, um, you know... Today, you could, uh, I, you know, I always had this idea that you could do that today in a Pro Tools thing where everybody played to the same click track and you could record all of those bands sort of right on top of each other in the same location and then pick the drum track you liked, pick the bass player, and you could kind of assemble it. But what they were doing was deciding that they had these five guys laying down the basics one day and then an entirely different five guys the next day. It wasn't like, oh, we want to change out the drummer and the bass player, but keep everything else the same. No, it was a complete reshuffle. So you'd get, I'm sure you'd get different feels for different bands playing the same exact song. Entirely, I guess. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear some of the other takes of some of the other you know, yeah. band versions. In that short video on YouTube, does... Um, it's actually Fagan and Becker themselves li- listening back to their old tracks. So they, they've got the original tracks, and they they fade in and yeah. fade out different takes. And they say, "Oh, that would have been." Interesting. They aren't even quite sure that. what's there. No. sometimes or who did it? <laughs> right? right. Why like, did oh. we do this? Why did we put that in there? I don't, yeah. I don't know. So that's really yeah. interesting. And we'll, I, I want to talk about one particular yeah. song that they did that when we get to the going through the album. Um, what else? Anything else interesting that pops out at you in terms of the history of this record or where you were at the time? Because this predates me as a young kid. Yeah, I wasn't into it at the time. I, you know, completely, I had people around me that loved Steely Dan and they were more the cerebral type of listeners, you know? So I, 
I immediately went to, oh, that music's probably too heady or it's uh, too jazzy or, you know, it's they're long songs with all these laborious solos, blah, blah. You know, that's what I thought. Yeah. You know, I had, it wasn't until maybe five, ten years ago that I really dove into Steely Dan and realized, you know, these are really three, four-minute pop songs perfectly formulated with no wasted space, great players and great solos but there was no like expansive i will just let that guy go on for 64 bars and play his guts out it was none of that it was very very meticulously organized yeah and growing up for me i was like to say i was a moderate steely dan fan would probably be overly generous it was like eh, his voice is kind of weird the hooks are kind of inaccessible to me and then like you more recently i you know maybe in the last three years i decided all right i'm just gonna dive in and mm-hmm. see what I get and then I once you do like you yeah. can't get out of it it's every so song addictive. yeah every song yeah but and I would recommend listening to every song and headphones too mm-hmm. to go back to your thing about how sonically it's accomplished and the nuance with which they produced was different and, and you know as we transition out of talking about the songs themselves you know one of the things that Rick Barada said in terms of the recording and I think you see this in the evolution of Steely Dan is he says in this, this peg video, you know, I used to play these little quick little accents where I would open up the hi-hat just a millimeter just to get a little in there. And he said, never heard it back on the mix down until this record. And he's like, holy crap, you you can hear everything. Yeah. And that's what I love so much about this album is that you hear everything. There's so much space, a lot going on, but Mm -hmm. all there's so much space for everything to breathe. Yeah, it's funny because it starts off, you know, the first song in the album, Black Cow, right out of the gate. It's like, here, here's this album. Of course, by, you know, in retrospect, we know it as a legendary album. So you expect to be just wild right out of the gate. And Black Cow just starts off with this simple groove. <laughs> And there's just, it's not trying to impress you or overpower you right out of the gate. It's just setting a mood. I feel like, you know, first of all, there's that very first note with the high little guitar trill. Um, And then all the space, and like you say, this groove. To me, it's almost like this first song is making an announcement. These first few measures are making an announcement. Like, this is what this record's going to be. It's going to be, it's going to have its own pace. It's going to be, it's going to have a lot of air to breathe. We're going to feature some musicians. It's, you even hear some complex chords playing over the simple beat at the very intro. And it's like, this to me, and that's why I asked the question earlier, like, this sounds like, all right, we're going to, we're not doing, um, you know, do it again. And we're not doing really, you know, in the years. This is a whole new direction. And we're maybe going to embrace more of our jazz influences. Yeah, that, um, you know, what is a black cow anyway? Well, it's not a white cow. <laughs> no, I actually, I looked it up. What it is. I used to think it was just a milkshake or something, like a chocolate shake. Yeah. I thought that's what it was. But I guess it turns out it's what we know as like a root beer float. They, they okay. kind of describe it as, you know, vanilla ice cream in root beer. Mm. So, uh, um, but what I found interesting about that was reading that the, it's got that great road solo in it. And that went down with the basics. Hmm. That was not an overdub. Okay, let's let him take multiple takes at this solo that went down as they were laying the basic stuff down so it's i guess it's not even take it's barely take one i guess interesting yeah well and then you know it's got all the hallmarks that we talked through about what makes yacht rock so great in a previous episode you hear the female backing vocals you hear the great as you mentioned the keyboard solo halftime shuffle halftime shuffle right out of the gate you got great horn arrangements um and again all of this is going on but it never feels layered or busy no, and I think that goes back to why people loved it as a record that 
you could show off your system on. I, I don't know if they thought about it consciously, but it was a great mix, it had great sound and all that stuff. But because there was this space, you know, there'd be hits and then there'd be space and all that stuff. It wasn't like this record that was mixed to be loud and just to inundate you with sound and to pound you over the head. And that's probably why it just plays so well on systems, you yep. know? And even the leads are not like, here, look what I can do. Right. It's like, it's, sometimes it's like, let's understate the lead. Yes, he's playing, but it's not like super high in the mix. It's not super loud. It's not super, super histrionic. It's just nice feel. And there's different styles. So it will come back to that in a minute. Yeah. So anything else about uh, Black Kyle before we move on to the next track? Um, I'm kind of excited to talk about Asia because that has, you know, I'm ready to move on to that one because that one's got one of the great drum performances of all time, if you can even say that. Yeah, so Asia is track two, the title track. Um, this is what the blokes in Spinal Tap might call a jazz exploration piece, yes. which you would not play in front of a festival crowd. So a little looser here and a yeah. little less based on hook. This is my take on it. It feels a little looser and it's like, let's really start exploring some of the jazz influences. Yeah, it goes through multiple key centers, um, which isn't the same as like having a key change in a song, but it's like uh, a portion of the verse is in one key and then it moves to another key and then transitions to another key. By the time it gets to the chorus, it's to another key. <laughs> you know, it just keeps moving around. And um, it, it, to me, that's... You know, really interesting about this before it even gets to my favorite part later on. Um, but in the that uh video that we were talking about, the uh classic albums, Denny Dias or DS Dias, I believe it is, he was the original guitar player from the very, very beginning. And they brought him once they kind of got going on out west, they you know moved from New York to out west, and so there they were with all these west coast cats, but they still wanted Denny Dias around because they felt that he was a core member. Well, he talks about something that goes back to one of the other episodes that we did, and he talked about how the chords of the, what they were doing now were so difficult for him to voice on guitar. He said they were either stretched so far apart or they were crunched so tight together that you couldn't really do it as one person. So you had to do multiple layers and, and the different guys would pick different areas to work, you know, um, you, you could take a, a chord that's as simple as a, a major seven chord, which is a one, three, five, and seven of a chord. And that gives you the two, four, and six are the spaces in between. So you've got these evenly spaced notes. But if you were to take that, you could take the three of that and move that up an octave. So now you go one, five, seven, up to three, an octave higher. And now you've spaced those notes out even more. Mm-hmm. You can obviously do the converse and you could flip the the order of the notes so that they're crunched tightly together you know you put that five on the bottom then seven then one which is an octave up so those two notes that seven and the one are only a half step apart right that's as crunchy as you can get in terms of dissonance in american or you know western music so you take that and now you do what denny was talking about and saying well one guy's playing them nice and tight down low and the other one's doing these real wide voicings up top and layering those two which is exactly what we talked about which is common with the keyboard parts where the piano player would be playing real dense stuff down low and the electric piano Rhodes guy would be playing these stretched voicings up top and when you layer that together that's when the magic happens because it sounds like a whole string section at that point just it gets so big harmonically but not big Sonically, it's not like you've layered five guitar parts. You've taken two and you've created this whole spectrum. You know, so it gets really rich in terms of notes, but not necessarily heavy in terms of audio. Which allows you then to maintain that space, space. and that air that you can almost like 
you could almost feel like you're in the room with the band and they got yeah. one guitar way over there and you're just it's it's incredible to listen to and again particularly on phones so we're two songs in and already now we've set the brand new tone mm-hmm. now we've done this I think a departure where we're really exploring jazz influences and complexity and the chord structures yeah and if you talk about the, the jazz we get to the break section in the middle I don't know if that's where you were headed but it comes to this spot where there's all these real big staccato band hits and Steve Gadd drummer is just going nuts solo wise. It's but he's anchored by these chords because no matter how much busy stuff he's doing in between, he has to bump, 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 hit every one of those chords in time. And then if that's not enough, they take jazz legend Wayne Shorter from Weather Report and and he's blowing his tenor solo on top of it. I mean, one of the greatest modern jazz tenor players of all time right and you've got all of this going on in this song it's just unbelievable and wayne shorter is probably was maybe best known correct me if i'm wrong as being like from that golden era of cool jazz 60s type of thing he came up from that and then he went into the fusion side of things with weather report but he was like with art blakey's uh i think uh, so when you talk about our an album now that is going to explore and embrace jazz influences yeah and you're putting together back to your early earlier point this personnel where you have Becker and Fagan acting as the masterminds, almost creating this, not even a super group, but this this group of technicians that are going to play together at any given time. And you specifically and intentionally bring in a jazz guy to do a jazz solo over a rock solo on the drums. It's just, that's the sound that you get. And it's distinctively Steely Dan. And then we move on to the third and final track of a side. So it's only three songs yeah, in and we're ready right. to wrap up side one. Right. And we should probably point out that a um, couple things here is that the for anyone, you know, younger listening, the whole idea of of making an album at the time was that you were making a complete project and you were thinking through not right. only how does the all of these songs work together. Sometimes artists would go on to even create like a concept album, like a Sgt. Peppers or something like that. Or, you know, so this is not that, but this is definitely an album that belongs as a unit and not, it's not just a collection of singles And the artists or the producers, I'm not sure who, but uh, probably a combination would think through things like it's important to lead with a track to close side one with a track to start side two with a specific kind of track and then mm-hmm. close the record with a different kind of track. So here we are closing side one. We're only three, three songs in, but I think we're close to 20 minutes in at this point, and that's Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues, the faded hipster. You know, it's, <laughs> I, uh, I like how they were, um, you know, being that they were transplanted from New York out to L.A., and they had such a that caused such an interesting perspective because not only were they from New York, but they were like the sophisticated upper crusty kind of guys, you know, whose humor was above everyone else's head mm-hmm. and then in, in probably so intense in that regard, you know, and then they come out to LA where everything's so laid back and this mix of cultures is I, I think a bit of what we hear in Deacon blues. Yeah. And to me, you know, my notes say all the feels like this song just has 
the cool feels yeah. of in you know when I was getting into yacht rock again, I was of course familiar with very familiar with A nineteen, which was <laughs> in the heavy rotation. But then I started hearing this Deacon Blue song more and more, and I was just like, what? I remember that song, but like I got to refamiliarize myself with it. And it's got one of these extended grooves where the, there's no one in particular is really soloing; they're just kind of vibing. It goes on for a long time. The more you try to figure out why, the more you start hearing these little nuance little bits yeah um which make it just beautiful so this song Larry is Carlton all the probably yeah he, uh I, the note i wrote down and i took away from it is that it's kind of hard to explain because it's a theory thing but the chord progression on this again it's almost like asia where it goes through these multiple keys and there's these very jazzy chords which has a lot of these half step motion in it um and you can hear the melody just moving to really interesting places that you couldn't get with just a basic, you know, internal, you know, typical rock chord progression. So you hear all these interesting notes in the melody that could only be gotten to by having an understanding of these sophisticated jazzy chord progressions. Yet the song Deacon Blues doesn't jump out at you as being avant-garde or anything like that. You know, it's no, very hooky. It, it, to me, it sounds like a, a radio single. So, it, yeah. you know, like right. they, we were trying to get radio appeal, and, and they did, but they managed to do it, as you say, with some complexity, which is sort of the genius behind Steely Dan, just more generally. Yeah, one of the things that um, I was just going to add real quick was that, uh, that I picked up from watching that video was that um, Dean Parks, a guitar player, talked about how they would rehearse this stuff to the point of perfection. Mm. And I think we may have talked about this before. Their goal was not to get to perfection. Their goal was to achieve perfection so that they knew exactly what it was supposed to be and then go beyond that and say, okay, now we know everything that's supposed to be. Now play it and make it feel natural and make it feel improvised. So they took perfection as a goal, but that was only a stop along the way. It's like, okay, now we have to go beyond perfection as if we understand what that really is. But they did. Yeah, they did. All right, so... Uh, you open up your hi-fi, you take the record, you flip it over, <laughs> all right, and you put the needle back do. down. Yeah, I know. Uh, and we're going to open side two with a hit, uh, which we've already referred to, and that's Peg. Yeah, Peg. Um, and that is the one, we go back to Rick Murata's, uh groove where he's just as i said in one of the earlier episodes it just glides along it's got this skipping sort of nature and a lot of that comes from just that subtle opening of the hi-hat that you hear in in it and it's just it's so tiny and so subtle but it provides that galloping sort of feel to the groove that just makes it kind of just glide along right you know? and then the bass player plays along with that. Chuck Rainey plays bass on every track except for Deacon Blues, which I think was Walter Becker. Okay. And he um he's got if you listen to the bass line, it's extremely busy, but somehow is not overdone. You know, it's got the and he talks about this in the making of the peg videos. He wanted is this a story about the slapping. Yeah, he want you know he's a slapper <laughs> and popper, right? And this is yeah. the mid seventies and that sound is coming up. And of course Fagan and Becker said, Don't do that. Yeah. And so <laughs> there was one take where he kind of turns his back to them and yeah, he so they can't this, see his hands, right? Can't see his hands, puts up a partition and slaps, and that becomes the boom ba doom doom doom, which is yeah. like iconic to the song, and it just it fits. And so you know, you marvel at a bass player that can play so busily but still stick with a drummer like Steve Gadd and just feel like I'm just laying down the pocket, the groove, and it's exceptionally done. So good job to Chuck, and I love that you snuck in a little slap and 
even against the producer's wishes. And then you get to the, uh, the I, I think the most famous story about all of Steely Dan is the guitar solo thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I were there, obviously, flying the wall for the process of them bringing these guys in. And they were only bringing in superstars to play for solos, right? They don't really tell us who these other ones are, but you know that they were just A-plus guys. And at this point, I got to think the reputation of Fagan and Becker's gotten around for the high bar and, you know, you need to impress and blah, 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 all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So as a musician, you're challenged to, you know, do I go in and show them everything I can do or do I go in and, quote, service the song? Right. You know, and they had to, they, they'd done multiple solos on this before they got the one that they wanted. And... I wonder if after a guy played it, if they just, you know, let him go and said, yeah, we'll call you or whatever, <laughs> right. you know, or yeah. if they actually told him right then and there, no, nah, that's not what we're looking for. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know when I heard some of those other solos back that they uncovered, they were bizarre. Yeah. And, but they all were kind of similarly bizarre where there was a lot of busy, here's my notes. Super busy. Yep. Yeah. And then the, the one that sticks. Then they bring in Jay Graydon, you know, and Jay Graydon is probably... Uh, you know, to me, one of the great guitar players, but he's not necessarily known to be a jazzy showy guy. He's much more of a, a lyrical rock kind of lead player, you know. And so by the time they called Jay, I don't know if it w- what the reasoning was, but they were certainly going to get something completely different. And what I love about Jay's take on it, you know, well, first of all, when Fagan and Becker are listening back to those other solos, I don't think they want to like embarrass the guy, whoever it is that they're playing back, but they just listen to it and they're like kind of looking at each other and go, yeah, it sort of speaks for itself, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so funny. It felt anyway, like a Spinal Tap moment. Yeah. And then, but then you hear Jay's solo. And what is so unique about Jay and that solo is that while everybody else was just blazing, look at everything I can do, his just starts off with one simple little line. And the thing, my big takeaway from it is he doesn't even play in the first bar of the solo. It's like bar one of the solo section goes by without him even playing a note. Yeah, and he doesn't really get going until, what, three or four bars before he lets all that tremolo work yeah. happen yeah. and set the tone. And then he's kind of off yes. running. It's so cool. But the first opening lick is like empty bar and then another lick that just is like two notes that then holds for another two bars. So, I mean, it's like two to three bars into the solo and he's only played two, three notes. Yeah, and know? go watch that video because yeah. you'll, you'll laugh when you hear these other soloists. They, I think they were trying to be like, all right, I got to impress this guy. Let me show you all the notes I can play yep. in two bars. And the one that stuck was the one that, back to your point, serviced the song and not themselves. So, yes. Um, Michael talks about, I know you were interested about Michael's, Michael McDonald, that is, his vocal uh, backups on this, which were interesting. Yeah, and again, watch the video because they isolate it, and it just sounds so weird and spooky. Yeah. But yeah, so um, he talks through the meticulous nature of the uh, what he was asked to do for backup vocals, which again, to your point, was you know sometimes I was putting notes really close together, right? And it didn't feel natural, but he knew what he wanted, and he was able to pull it off. Also, like the phrasing of how you would say a certain phrase was very meticulous, and yeah. Um, and then I, it's something that after now watching that video, all I can hear now is the Kevin McDonald part in the chorus where he's, uh, Michael McDonald. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, he he. Uh, I think of him in some of these tight 
harmonies. So I was kind of running it through in my head, even though I didn't really analyze the song or know what exactly what notes or what key it's in or anything like that. But I could just imagine a singer in the days, you know, where there was no fixing it later. There was no auto-tune or anything like that. And he has to go in and sing, or whatever the note is, yep. on a B. And then he has to go right back in and sing it half step higher, a C. If he's doing that thing like I would have saying about where you right. invert the chord where you got two notes that are half a step apart. And he's got to be able to find those notes, especially after that first one's in and it's locked in your head. Now you got to sing the note a half step higher. Yeah. That's and then crazy. go listen to it when they isolate those tracks. Yeah. You'll hear all of that stuff, that nuance. Um, anything else on, uh, on Peg? I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> well done. <laughs> the next song is called Home at Last. And this is a song that I totally was not on my radar until we decided to go deep on this album. And as I re-listened to the song, I had a whole new appreciation for how good this tune is. And I, I immediately put it into my little heavy rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, to me, it's like, all right, if Peg started to get a little bit out of control, this song reigns it back in and resets the tone. So laid back. I mean, it is the quintessential Bernard Purdy shuffle. And it, this is a good example where when we've talked about the shuffle groove, you can listen to some of the other shuffle tunes that we've talked about from Steve Gadd and Jeff Percaro. And then you hear Purdy's version, which is apparently the origin of it, but he has a completely different feel to it. And the guitar solo, you know, right after Peg, the guitar solo in this song, very jazz influenced, um, totally different than what you would have just heard, which to me is starts out as more of like a rock solo. Uh, this is very definite to me, at least has all the jazz vibes of what a jazz guitar. Probably solo Larry Carlton. I'd have to look that up either him or yeah. maybe Becker, but I think that that would probably be Larry Carlton, which I guess, you know, goes back to why you have 40 musicians on a record. If you want to get that variety, certain yeah. guitarists could do it. Of course, Jake Graydon probably could have pulled it off himself, but you get all of these different influences and all of these different mm-hmm. styles. And then the outputs become so unique and, and different amongst themselves. And then that transitions into a song where I'm just going to let you talk on this one. Because to me, this is a little spastic and gets, it's called I Got the News, right? That's the next song. It's just, I didn't have a ton to say on it other than I was ready to hit skip. So don't kill me. No, that's one that'll grow on you over time, I think. Um, I like the, uh, that, that. Opening piano pattern, which was actually played by Victor Feldman, who's more known for playing um, vibes and stuff. But he Mm -hmm. did a lot more keyboard stuff on this. We talked about his solo on the roads before. But this one, that's him on that. And um, it's a very interesting, but you're right about it being spastic, you know, because it's just these chords just staccato popping out. And yet somehow they're able to make it groove. And, you know, I think that comes down to, you know, again, you're talking about Chuck Rainey on bass. You know, Chuck Rainey was a good anchor to have against that um ed green on drums on that one and i don't know a ton about ed green hmm. i would guess he was more jazz influenced only because the rhythm of that feels just kind of off time and uh not off not i guess off time's the right word but just again it's not to me it's not set up to just be a nice easy accessible groove to just lay down it's very much part of the song which is da, 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 that type of thing yes yeah so yeah and then um interesting uh Guitar work on that one, a couple of solos. Yeah, this song's a little bit, definitely comes off as more of an album cut. It doesn't look like they were trying to create a, you know, a real big hook or anything. It's more of kind of a vamp tune, um, but I find it very interesting, and I'm not exactly sure 
why, which is not to counter what you're saying. Um, no, but- I find it interesting. I almost find it too interesting. Like uh, you call it math rock. Like yeah, it, yeah, I think there's some of that there. Yeah. Yep. So, but it sets up the end song, which to me, this is one of my all-time favorite Steely Dan songs. And I love how this song, to me, starts almost like a, a fake. Because you hear the guitar open. Play the guitar open real quick. Yep. And to me, now, this sounds like they're going back to their roots. And that sounds like it should belong on... I don't know, Katie Lied or an early record, mm-hmm. you know, where they're doing more of the rock thing. Yes. But then immediately they get into it and we're back into this happy little jazz groove. Yeah, they considered it to be a uh, kind of the classic what a Steely Dan record is supposed to sound like. You know, it's got some rock, it's got some R&B in it, it's got some jazz. Uh, but um, it definitely sounds like jazz guys playing over a rock kind of track, you know. Um, it's, it's what do they say that that Steely Dan that this record isn't jazzers slumming and it's not rockers playing above their grade. It's kind of somewhere in between, you know. And to me, that's what this song that's really represents. Yeah, listen, play a little of the intro real quick, and I want people to listen to what the bass guy's doing because he does this little quick little multi note slide up after he lays down the groove. So listen to this. So not only is that like just a cool bass line on its own, I feel like later on in the song, which we'll get to it, the guitar solo echoes that. I don't know if it's intentionally, but you'll hear that same theme come back. But I love how it's just the, you know, real nice tight root and then this little sing-songy accent yeah. at the end of the measure. And then with Jim Keltner on drums, who has played with them a bit, but Jim Keltner is a little more known as a straight rock type of guy. You know, a guy that's going to give you the straight basic guts of a tune and, you know, super great timing. Um, So they knew that they wanted to have that sort of rock core in there because, you know, between the drums and the guitar and then all all of a sudden the bass is freed up to do more stuff like that. Like you're saying. Right. Um, You know, and like you said, it's got this funky feel to it. And then when it gets to the chorus area, it has these chord changes that to me are so like beautiful. It's so lush. Yeah. So lush. And just, again, not the easy chords that you hear, you know, being played nowadays. It's just something that you wouldn't expect, which is kind of a hallmark of some, you know, some jazz. You know, it's not the easy chord. It's not the intuitive chord. It's the, I threw this in there. and Ooh, does that sound nice? That's what I get out of the chorus. And it's got that vocal bed in there, but it's almost like the verses represent their New York side. And then that part represents their LA side exactly you know? and that was my note is that they come out of this course and they're right back into the the groove right and it just has a totally different feel but it works together somehow seamlessly and it's not a long album either I mean it's of course it's what seven songs right. about only about 40 minutes not even 40 minutes not even like 3950 or okay. something like that and going back to you know the we're we're thinking about this in terms of an album they weren't afraid to put what, could, what was eventually a huge hit and ended up being my favorite song of all time by them the, on the last song of Side 2 because they knew that this was going to be consumed or should be consumed as a one piece of work as opposed to seven songs. Yeah, I think they had, um, I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but they knew by then that they had an audience that wanted uh, an album, not necessarily hits, singles. Yep. You know, and they were kind of living musically in the dead center of the album-oriented rock heyday. You know, where radio would play any song, even if it wasn't released on a forty-five as a single. They they would 
play it. You know, a lot of the DJs were thought themselves, you know, that they could launch a song by, uh, you know, playing it, even though it wasn't released by the record label. It's probably a bit of a thumbing to the record labels at times, but mm-hmm. that that was what made album. Uh, radio great at the time is well, you weren't just hearing the same one song that has been deemed to be the single over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, I was going to point out exactly what you said that there was a format for this in uh, back in the day called AOR album oriented rock. Which yeah. again, now Sirius has something like this where it's like deep cuts or something like that. But the whole idea was we're going to explore the entire album, not just play hits. So that was that's gone, at least on FM radio. It's it is. In the past. It's, yeah. Uh, all right. Before we get to the fade out, can we play a little of that guitar solo so we can hear? And I want to see if you think that there is the, an echo effect or was it just coincidence that what the guitar soloist is doing sounds like what the bass player was doing at the beginning? Yeah, I definitely do hear that. Yeah, I definitely do hear that. I never noticed that before, but yeah. once you put those two sections back to back to <laughs> back, to back, back you notice it. Yeah. yeah, and so I wouldn't put it past them to have that level of detail. Yeah, and that's kind of a common trick with jazz players. They always love to sort of speak someone else's uh, voice. You know, kind of. I remember back in the old like Brubeck stuff. It was always a challenge between Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond and those guys that when they were doing stuff live that they would try to almost crack the band up by, you know, playing Pop Goes the Weasel in the middle of their solo (laughs) or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then the song fades out. Again, thinking of this as an album, I love how long Long the groove is at the end and how long it takes to fade. It's like a sunset, isn't it? Totally, exactly (laughs) what I thought. I mean, on the yacht, looking out, watching the sun go down, that's how this album ends. It's brilliant. It's perfect. All right, lightning round. Um, okay, so what's the lightning round, John? Yacht or not, we'll yes. start with, and then we have a buried treasure and then an off-the-map suggestion. So uh, the yacht or not, I'm going to hit you first, if you don't mind. Hit me. I have a song that, uh, <sighs> Sail On by the Commodores. Now, it's, of course, got the sail in the in the title, so don't let that mislead you. But sail on by the Commodores. Sail on down the line. Well, it got in because it had that in the title, even though it has nothing to do with the song. It's been t- <laughs> telling a lady to beat it. Um, but what I like about it is it's the gateway drug to allowing Commodores into your Yacht Rock mix, because I do think other stuff of theirs belongs in it, like Easy and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I say Yacht for that reason alone. Me too. Totally agree. Same reasons? All the same reasons, yeah. Okay. My Yacht or Not, I'm going to pose a question to you right. and see how you answer it. And then I do have a specific song, but it's artist-related. Okay. So my question to you, is there any part of the catalog of Rick Springfield that belongs on the yacht? Hmm. I could hear a case made for something like Don't Talk to Strangers. Okay. But uh, mostly I would say no, but uh, maybe you've got well, an idea. I have a song because I wanted to include some of his stuff in my playlist, and I was looking for a reason. And then I stumbled upon, upon What Kind of Fool Am I? Oh, yeah. Okay. The Came same on, album as Don't Talk to Strangers, yep. yeah. In 1982, so it fits from a time frame standpoint. It's it's not so much yachty to me as that I, I hear hear elements of like some West Coast, maybe Jackson Brown. No question. The way that it's mixed, it's got the, a lot of the electric piano stuff in there. It's very smooth. Very smooth mm-hmm. and kind of the melody of it. So I, you know, probably not yacht, but at least close enough. Could be on off the map and therefore get in. You going not on all of the catalog? <laughs> 
No, I'm going to say yes on the on maybe maybe both those, but I'm going to say yes. Okay. Cool. Well, then I will hit you with a buried treasure. Um, so round two or part two of our lightning round is buried treasure, a song that is maybe not among the hits, but really should be. And let's see if I go through my list. I am going to give you a song that is probably not buried for you, but I think it's buried to the novice. And that is the band is Larson Fighting Band. Is that how you say that? I'm not sure, but I know the band, obviously. And I know you love the song, yeah. but in case it's buried for you, go out and find Who'll Be the Fool Tonight. Yeah, that is so good. Um, somebody posted a picture that <laughs> of uh, you know took a snap of their radio in their car, and it was playing, but it was on 80s on 8 on Sirius. And wow. Like, they're like, do I have the wrong station on here? But that shocked me that they would play it on that. But I love that song. That's a great song. And again, it was only buried for the for me for the first two or three years into my Yacht Rock experience. So it's like, if it took me that long to find it, it's at least some. I didn't buried. know it back then. I no. swear I didn't know it back then. All right, what do you got for a buried treasure? Well, it's possibly uh, a borderline yachty thing. Um, but to me, it's it's yacht, even though it only got 11.25 on the yacht ski Ooh, scale. That's pretty low. Yeah, I know. But this is... Um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Just a Song Before I Go. Just a song before I go. Yeah, I've been hearing that one a lot lately for whatever reason, and it's different for them. Even though I hear the melody in my head, it doesn't sound different, but the mix, I I would call that Yachty. I know it's not Yacht or not, but definitely good buried treasure for sure. So we move then to Off the Map. Off the Map. So just a quick review. This is something that we recognize is definitely not... Yacht, but we think that it would fit in as you're trying to grow your playlist into something more listenable that you want some more variety, but you still love what makes Yacht Rock great. And we have a couple things maybe we can add in there. So um, as I look at this, I know this is a, a stretch. That's why it's but, off the map. Yeah. But I, I love this song. It's a Beach Boys song from 1973. Hmm. So we're close in the time. It was actually reissued as a single in 1975, but that is Sail on Sailor. Yes. In fact, I heard that recently enough, and I tried to talk myself into thinking it was Yacht Rock. It's not, but it fits for a lot of the reasons. Why do you have it in there? Just for feels? Yeah, I have it in there because I think it adds some nice um, texture to the list. I don't think it, it, it sounds like it's coming from left field. And again, I'm not trying to tell you that it is a Yacht Rock song, but I'm yeah. saying this will sound good in with your stuff. You yep. know, you don't want those same 200 songs over and over again. Yep. Eventually, you grow tired of that. Exactly. And I'm taking a risk here with my off the map. So I'm going to make the case before I say the song because I know you're going to throw something at me. <laughs> but um, I let me just preface this by saying again, I know it's not Yacht Rock. Um, it's not a buried treasure because this song was very popular. In fact, it's been memified because it is too popular. Mm. But um, we're talking about a song that came out in 1984, features the alto sax very prominently, has some tasty bass, not West Coast. It's a UK band. The song, and I'm going to duck quickly, <laughs> the, the song that I think would fit in with your off the map and nice fit into the mix, Careless Whisper by Wham. I think for all the reasons, I would agree with that. Watch the video. Do you remember the video? It takes place partially on a big sailboat. Does it? I don't remember that. Yeah. The the woman that he apparently was scorning him 
Send me boat. next episode. You're going to bring Duran Duran in. Like I've got. Well, you never know. I okay. got my list. All right. <laughs> so anyway, so that's off the map. Enjoy that again. All of these off the map lightning round. We're creating a playlist. It's public. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes so that you can find it. If you're wondering how do I find the show notes or how do I find the podcast, the easiest thing to do is start at yachtrockpodcast.com. And we are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on any podcasting platform out there. So anything else you want to add, Co-Captain John? Um, no, I think we kind of covered that one. That was There was a lot there. A lot there. So yeah. I will uh, take the words out of your mouth and say, ahoy, ahoy. <laughs>